Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This, to me, is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Jenna Ellis in the Morning. I'm Jenna Ellis. And, you know, there are some times that topics and the history and the facts of one particular issue are so important that we have to do a deep dive and focus on that topic and really expand and enlighten ourselves as to what is actually going on in the truth of the matter. And today is one of those days because this relates to the truth and the history of the transgender movement. And so my friend Pedro Gonzalez joins me and he is a senior fellow with the American Principles Project and has written a research paper that is only 30 pages but packs information about the truth of the transgender movement. It's titled The Transgender Leviathan. And as I have read through this, as I've been talking uh, with Pager, I had to have him on today and for the full hour to really unpack this and get to the core of why we are seeing the transgender agenda in our culture today. And obviously, as Christians, as conservatives, we reject the leftist viewpoints of the transgender movement, of their expression of gender being a spectrum, that men can become women. I mean, all of these things we reject as fundamentally false and inconsistent with the truth of the reality to which God presents us. We know that uh, human sexuality and the identity and the biological reality of human beings are fixed and are immutable and are are ordained by God himself. But why is the transgender movement taking hold of our politics, of our culture, of our education system, of our court system, of uh, court cases that deal with parental rights and custody disputes? And where did this begin? And I think uh, in unpacking the transgender Leviathan, this research paper with Pedro today, you are going to be as shocked as I was uh, with some of what has happened in the past and some of the people that were core players and uh, ties even to our own federal government. So let's get right into it. Uh, Pedro Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, thank you so much for your work on this project. And let's just start with... Uh, the history of this and why this was important for you to publish at this moment. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, you're very kind. Well, I, I started this project because I just felt like it was an issue that was really important and also not being taken seriously. Uh, I, I don't want to say that I was like the first one that took this issue seriously, but it just occurred to me that a lot of the commentary coming from the right to directed at transgenderism and more broadly the, the transgender movement was generally kind of like pointing fingers and laughing at you know people who are obviously men with beards in dresses or something like that and it just seemed like you know, despite all the mockery despite the fact that a lot of this stuff is on its face just ridiculous it was never slowing down it was it was kind of like a snowball it was always getting stronger and bigger and and more influential and you were seeing it 
take root even in red states, right? But I, I've written, I've, I've documented how even if you, even in Texas, uh, you're not safe from this stuff. And, and so I, I decided to take a closer look and try to figure out why is this stuff so seemingly powerful? Why, why is it not slowing down? And so I really came to the conclusion that on the one hand, it's a lot worse than I initially thought it was. And on the other hand, that it's like a perfect storm, basically, between ideology and interest. And what I mean by that is bad ideas and money. And that's really what I try to do with this report. And initially, I started with an op-ed in the New York Post. And uh, in that op-ed, I talked about what I call, because it, it just seems so fitting, the, the transgender industrial complex. But basically, you have this confluence, again, of, of ideology and interest that just comes together to make this kind of uh, bulldozer that is, is capable to just overpower, you know, whatever's in front of it um, in terms of arguments and, and just continue the process of normalizing um, transgenderism, and specifically as it, as it pertains to, to children. Um, and basically, there is just a whole lot of money involved in this. Uh, there are true believers. There are obviously people who really do believe that, you know, with the proper application of medical science, uh, you can just turn a man into a woman and a woman into a man. But there's also a ton of money, and uh, whether it's from pharmaceutical comp uh, companies, whether it's from, you know, billionaires who have, you know, in the past backed the, um, the, the same-sex marriage movement and are now you know, as, as kind of like the logical continuation of the LGBT rights movement are now also bankrolling the, the trans movement. Uh, there's a lot of that. Um, but it, it goes across party lines. Yes, Democrats are the biggest beneficiaries when you look at, you know, who's giving money to, uh, to who. Uh, Democrats do obviously uh, reap uh, the, the lion's share in that sense. But Republicans are also involved in this, uh, and, and important Republican organizations are involved in this. And there's just really no one who has their hands clean. And that's really kind of what I tried to show in this report uh, in, in the space of about 30 pages and 10,000 words. It's an, it's an incredible report, and I'm talking with Pedro Gonzalez, who is a senior fellow at the American Principles Project and wrote this research paper uh, called The Transgender Leviathan, and you can download this report for free. Uh, you can read it for yourself, and it goes through... Uh, what you have been articulating, Pedro, with um, the the history and the politics of transgenderism, um, there was an article a few years ago in the Federalist that was talking about the the rise of big medicine and how the pharmaceutical uh, conglomerates were essentially creating a a whole new customer base for these uh, these transgender patients and, and customers, really, uh, and showing how the money was flowing there. Because when you have people who are dependent on hormone therapy, dependent on uh, taking care of their bodies after these uh, radical life-altering surgeries, then you have this, this new entire group that will be dependent on a big pharma for the rest of their lives. And so as we're seeing some of this that is not at all a ideologically driven in the sense that the left is pushing it to say, well, we want that th th there's no altruistic um, means here. There's no altruistic 
uh, goal for big pharma uh, as much as the propaganda has tried to shape it that way. Um, but let, but going back to the very first introduction, um, I was shocked to hear about who you term patient zero and the history of uh, John William Money. So let's start there and kind of unpack how this even became popularized in mainstream quote-unquote science. Yeah, yeah John Money, um, really, really fitting name, right? <clears throat> Sometimes names are revealing, you know, John Money, uh, the, the Democrat uh, politician Scott Weiner, who's a, a big backer of, of LGBT stuff and also some, some has, has passed some pretty repulsive legislation and, and has has floated uh, the idea for one piece of legislation as being um, a drag queen story hour, or drag queen 101, and, and for, for K-12 kids. And, and he said that to fulfill the requirement, kids would have to attend a drag queen story hour. So names can tell you a lot. So John Money... Indeed. Uh, so, so John Money was actually from New Zealand, uh, and he, he received his PhD from Harvard in 52. Uh, and by... 1966, he had founded the Gender Identity Clinic at Johns Hopkins University. So this is not someone who's like on the fringe. This is someone who's in the thick of it, someone who is in, embedded in a powerful institution. And at the time, money had kind of pioneered or at least been known primarily for his work on people born with intersexual conditions, or what we might call hermaphroditism. It's not really a term that's used anymore, but that's, that's what it was you know, po- commonly known as then, and a lot of people still refer to it as such today. And he wrote his dissertation on that, on that topic. But money was really focused not on these kinds of interesting cases of people that are born with you know, uh, both male and female sex organs. Um, what money was really interested in was proving a general theory of humans. And that is that the, the main things behind psychosexual differentiation come down to nurture and not necessarily nature. So, so money was not really, this is interesting to think about because, you know, you're, as we're going to discuss, money was a pretty radical guy for his time and, and still would be probably considered radical today. But he wasn't one of these people that thought only nature or only nurture. There are people that you know believe that today. Basically, that there is no such thing as human nature. That's not exactly where money was. Money, I think, came down the side of it's it's more nurture, and and that yes, there is something like nature. But with the proper application of science, we can overcome nature, right? Um, right. So th- this would be that- similar to people who, for example, would say we need to have gender neutral toys for kids so that we don't try to impress upon them their sexuality. They can choose it. And so it's all about a matter of outside stimulation rather than uh, internal biology. Yeah. Yeah. But he, he did not. I don't. It's not clear that he completely, you know, refuted the idea that there is such a thing as nature. But but otherwise, I mean, this is this is still bad news, and it, and it lays the ground for what what we're all living in right now. Um, so that was that was money. I think that's important because there are people that I think would like to argue that well, there's you know, the, the, the stretch to connect him to the modern transgender movement. It's, no, no, he, he very clearly laid the cornerstone for this stuff, and especially as it uh, as it concerns sexual uh, assignment surgery for minors. So. Um, another important fact about money is that he was not really known for 
his phenomenal sound clinical research, Money was really known as a marketer. Uh, he was really good at using the media to promote his ideas. And so an example of this early on was that when the, the clinic was founded at John Hopkins, the clinic at the time, this is, this is still taboo, this is still pretty out there, uh, and you know, press coverage of something like this can be pretty bad. And so Money, being very smart, decided that he was going to give an exclusive comment to the New York Times, and he basically... Uh, anticipated the New York Times to be friendly towards what he was doing, and it was, and that the the coverage, the positive coverage from the Times, from a prestigious uh, journalistic organization like the Times, would basically set the tone for the rest of the media, and it worked. He, uh, his, his plan totally worked. The Times, you know, ran a story. It was it was favorable to him, um, and that it, it set the tone for everybody else. So. Um, Money. This is really interesting because money had actually discussed how it would be it would be unethical to to take a child and and subject them to like a sex reassignment surgery, um, and he said it, it that could only possibly happen, you know, if there was some kind of an accident uh, in nature that kind of just gave you the opportunity uh, to do this. So it's interesting that he he acknowledged that it, it would it, it would basically be wrong to do this to someone. Unless, you know, just by chance, uh, you had kind of the medical opportunity to do it. And sure enough, that happened. Um, there was a little boy born Bruce Reamer, and uh, his penis was severely damaged during a botched circumcision. And his parents, like I said, had heard about money in the media, and they had heard about the radical things that he was doing, and, and you know, this idea that you can, you can basically just manipulate uh, gender and all that. And so, in their desperation, they turned to money and they asked him, "Can you turn our son into a girl so that he can have something of a normal life?" Because they're obviously worried that um, that he wouldn't be able to do that as a boy with you know with with his um, his penis damage as badly as it was. So, so let's and, let's pause here because we're uh, we're coming up against a hard okay. break and. Uh, you know, th- this is fascinating, and this this entire story, and we're getting, of course, into uh, the you know, the ethics of, of patient zero. So I'm talking with Pedro Gonzalez, who wrote uh, the transgender Leviathan, this amazing report from the American Principles Project. You can find it at AmericanPrinciplesProject.org. This whole history uh, and truth of where the transgender movement originated, why it has kind of taken over, how they are coming for your kids. So you're listening to Jenna Ellis in the morning. We will be right back with more on this topic. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning. I'm talking with my special guest today, Pedro Gonzalez, who is a senior fellow at the American Principles Project and wrote this amazing report called The Transgender Leviathan and the, the truth and the history of the transgender movement and how ultimately it is coming for your kids. Uh, the politics of transgenderism, the history of big medicine, bad medicine, and also we will get to the way forward, I promise, because there is a way forward because we all have to be rooted in the truth of the gospel of Christ and the truth of the reality to which he presents us. So any of these evil, evil agendas,
agendas and ideas can always be combated with truth. Uh, so Pedro Gonzalez, we were talking uh, before the break about this uh, first really test case of uh, this young man who was born, um, th- this baby boy who was born male, and uh, he, you were describing how he had had a botched circumcision. So there wasn't anything wrong with it. I mean, but for that surgery, uh, then he would have just been totally fine and normal. And it was only because of that that then his parents decided to contact this uh, influential psychologist and sexologist, uh, John Money, to talk about options. Yeah. Is is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So he was he was completely normal, uh, born with normal you know, male sex organs and a nervous system and all that. And uh, and again, this doesn't make sense to us, but the parents were really desperate. You know, they they were really worried that because of the circumcision, he wouldn't ha- he wouldn't be able to have a normal life as a male. So so they turned to money and they asked, can you can you make our boy into a girl? Um, because at such a young age, I guess they thought that he would never know. Right? If, if if the surgery would be successful, then he would never know. And so money immediately advocated that uh, Bruce Reamer be sex reassigned into a girl. Uh, the parents, although they turned to him, uh, were still not really entirely on board with the idea. You know, they, they had second thoughts, but money immediately began badgering them, accusing them of procrastinating, very similar to today. You know, like you, once your kid expresses any kind of confusion or distress about their body, it's time to transition them, no questions asked, as, as rapidly as possible. So very similar to, to what we see today, and, and that's why I've argued that this was really kind of like a patient zero case. And so after badgering them, the Reamers ultimately agree to have their boy sex reassigned. This was the first time uh, that a surgery like this had been done on a child born otherwise completely normal. There had been sex reassignments on what we would call hermaphrodite children, but this had never been done before. It was really, really radical. And so at 22 months old, uh, Money's team at Johns Hopkins removed David's testicles and penis and constructed rudimentary female genitals for him. Really kind of like Frankenstein's monster stuff. It's really really, um, really dis- disturbing. I mean, uh, you can read about the, the medical notes that I have in my report, but it actually gets worse. Um, so, so Money told the parents uh, that they were not allowed to ever address Bruce Reamer uh, as a boy, and that basically they had to create this, this Potemkin village for him where he would be raised as a girl. And so they gave him the name Brenda. So Bruce became Brenda, and he began receiving uh, regular doses of an estrogen medication that we no longer actually uh, prescribe for people that are, are, are transsexual or, or transitioning, rather, um, because we, we found out that it actually is extremely risky, and it has serious uh, effects for cardiovascular health. So really, again, really similar to today, right? This medicine was considered totally safe for this purpose at that time. And then we found out, oh, wow, it, it dramatically increases the likelihood of blood, co- uh, blood, clot, blood clot in people that use it. So we no longer prescribe that. But, of course, there are other medicines that we now are so convinced are totally safe to give to people that are also transitioning, right? Yeah, there's no, you, know, you can clearly see the parallel there. Right. And so, ba- so basically, until the age of 15, Brenda is raised as a girl. Um, Brenda also has a twin brother named Brian, 
And this is where it gets really gruesome. As part of affirming what money called the gender schema of Brenda, he would have the two twin brothers at the age of uh, six simulate sexual acts on one another. So, for example, he would have Brenda. This is, again, this, is, this might disturb some of your listeners, but it, I think people need to hear it. They need to hear how disgusting and perverted and wrong this stuff is and how immoral it is. Yeah, and not just that this isn't just gender-affirming care. This isn't something where, oh, love is love, there's no harm. What's the harm? I mean, here we're actually getting into how disturbing this is. So, yeah, please continue. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, another parallel here. Money believed that uh, it was important to expose children to pornographic material so that as part of their, their sex education. Again, you can, you can see that you, this is exactly what we're living in today. Children need access to books like Gender Queer, right? So in, in one case, uh, Dr. Money would have Brenda get on his couch on all fours and then have Brian, his six-year-old twin brother, come up behind him and, and basically simulate that kind of sexual position. In another case, he would have Brenda uh, lay down on the floor and then have Brian lay on top of him. Him. I mean, it's not a girl. But you, you, you know what I'm saying here. And uh, according to Brian, who spoke to a journalist named John Quillapinto, who wrote a really good book, I highly recommend it, it's called uh, As Nature Made Him, Brian told Quillapinto that on at least one occasion, money took a Polaroid photograph of them during these simulated sexual acts. Really evil stuff. At the age of 15, the truth comes out, the the parents admit, okay, you're you're not a girl, You're, you're a boy, you're a born Bruce. And... The experiment was a complete failure. Uh, Brenda never actually felt like a Brenda and was actually was the dominant of the two twins, basically was the tomboy, and always felt like he was not actually a Brenda. And um, he, he really struggled emotionally, socially, and academically growing up because he thought there was something wrong. And the family finally told him, you're right, you were born a boy. And so he took the name Goliath, or excuse me, he took the name David because he identified as a biblical figure who was up against the Goliath uh, after discovering that he was born a boy at 15. He tried to have a normal life, but in 2004, after getting married and adopting a kid, uh, sorry, adopting children, um, he, he took his life. He shot himself in the head with a sawed-off shotgun uh, wow. while sitting in his truck at a, at a grocery store parking lot. And I think it, it's just this kind of, when, when it's people a tragedy decide from start to finish. Suicide, yeah. When people decide they're going to commit suicide, it, it, I think it's, it's sad how meticulous they are. You know, he, he, he took the time to saw off the barrel of the shotgun. He took the, drive, he took the time to drive to a particular location, and then he ended his life that way. And that was two years after his brother Brian overdosed in antidepressants. Uh, money went to the grave insisting that the... the, the the whole experiment, which he called the John Jones case, to conceal the identities of the twins, uh, was a success. He marketed it as such, as a, as a complete success in a book called Man and Woman, Boy and Girl. And uh, the experiment was a central part of his book. Uh, and it, because of his claims that it was a total success, nothing was wrong, um, it, it was promulgated as such by... Uh, by major newspapers, by academic journals, by medical journals, by medical associations. It, the John Jones case became sort of like the cornerstone proof that we can do this, that we can just kind of snap our fingers and manipulate human nature uh, with medical techniques. And when the truth came out in the 90s, uh, thanks to John Colapinto and one of John Money's academic rivals, 
Um, money went to the grave saying, I did nothing wrong. This is a conservative plot against me. And this is really important. Throughout his entire life, money's research into the, the fields related to transgenderism and, and sexuality, uh, they were funded by the NIH, by the, the National Institutes of Health. In other words, he was doing a lot of this stuff with your money. And even after the, the truth of the, the John Jones experiment came out, he continued receiving NIH funding, specifically with regard to, to research into these, these sexual things. Uh, so, so something else that people don't know about about John Money is that he actually was really influential when it came to uh, coining terms that we all use today that we have no idea come, uh, that come back to him. Like, for example, uh, gender identity. He's credited with introducing the term gender identity and gender role. I mean, these are terms that conservatives use all the time, right? That there are, there are, it's, it's sort of like we use them thoughtlessly. But money is actually, according to various sources, the guy who introduced these terms. Uh, he also changed the way that we talk about things like, um, like pedophilia. So before it was referred to as a perversion, or, you know, as a type of like sexual deviance, because it is in fact. Well, money popularized the term and said para- paraphilia instead of perversion when speaking about things like pedophilia, because. It's less stigmatizing. When you're calling it paraphilia, what you're saying is that there's, you have an abnormal attraction, paraphilia, as opposed to perversion, which, which suggests that there's something wrong, like something bad wrong with you. Well, money thought that was too stigmatizing. So now uh, pedophilia is filed under paraphilia instead of a sexual perversion. And and so, again, and we, so and we, just to jump yeah. in here really quick, though, I mean, so I, I want people who are listening to this to, to understand the significance of what you're talking about, because you're saying that money received funding from the NIH. So this is government funds. This is our taxpayer money going to fund these Frankenstein-like projects. And then you have money who is coining these terms that, as, as you rightly said, Pedro, conservatives use thoughtlessly. Um, even the term saying, you know, they're uh, he's a biological man. Well, just saying he's a man is the same thing. And we need to be very careful about the language that we use so that we do not give and cede ground to the left and we don't speak and argue in terms that they have defined and redefined to win the argument according to their terms. And any policy argument, as as anyone who does any sort of policy debate uh, in, in a formal setting understands, whoever defines the terms yep. up front and gets their definitions generally wins the argument. And so, yep. so that's very well pointed out. Um, but I think this also then gets into... Um, with with the NIH gets into the politics of transgenderism because this wasn't some guy who is just this you know crazy Frankenstein sort of doctor that's trying to manipulate this uh, random experiment that is disturbing on so many levels but he's actually getting funding from the NIH what was the purpose for that and what was their goal in giving him this money for these types of experiments. So uh, not long before the, the twins died, uh, the Institute, the NIH, recommended money for a grant for a major project, and that was the classification of consolida- and, and consolidation of contemporary knowledge of paraphilia as a perversion. So b- basically, uh, money's research was in these kind of adjacent fields of changing the way that we discuss these things. And that's, that's important because 
how we, I think we don't give enough importance to, to language, right? Um, I think it was Heidegger right. who said that, that uh, language is the house of being. And, and that is to say that language, language defines the reality. And how we talk about things is ultimately how we conceptualize them. And, and ultimately how we conceptualize them is how they're reified, how they're made real in the world. And yes. And, and linguistics are so important because we communicate using words and, and ideas. Of course, there are nonverbal communications, but to particularly describe what we are accurately perceiving as reality and and the the objects that we describe every day, we all use terms to describe something that exists apart from the linguistic term that we use for it. And so, I mean, I could call a coffee cup a horse, but but anyone who knows the definitions knows right. that the concept <laughs> of that word doesn't match the object that I'm trying to describe. So they would say that that's false. And my good friend Michael Knowles, by the way, from Daily Wire, wrote a very excellent book on this topic called Speechless, uh, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. And he does a deeper dive into that whole linguistic uh, problem with with today's society, but um, but I'm speaking with Pedro Gonzalez, who wrote the transgender Leviathan, and and we're talking about the politics of transgenderism. So um, so moving forward in, into linguistics and how politics has really harnessed this to promote uh, the, this transgender agenda. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it's it's terrifying stuff. And by the way, the first the, the first official. Um, a directly funded study of transgender youth, uh, which involved administering cross-sex hormones to children, uh, was in 2015, and it was funded by the National Institutes of Health. So and I, the reason I, I really like to hammer this point is that there's no opting out. A lot of people don't want anything to do with this issue. Uh, you'll hear a lot of Republican consultants say basically it's not you know something that really matters because it's not like a pocketbook thing. Uh, it's not as, as important as like you know making sure that the the, the traffic lights work or whatever. Um, actually, you don't have a choice. Uh, the federal government is using your money to, to subsidize research into this stuff, which then comes back to you. You know when you get a knock on your door from a social worker uh, who your uh, who spoke to your child's teacher after your child convinced you, uh, a- after the teacher convinced your child that they're trans and they came home and told you I'm trans and you said no they're not the kid goes back to school and tells the teacher my parents say I'm not trans and that teacher goes and talks to a social worker who has been armed with this research and then hauls you into court before a judge who's been informed by the experts that transgender sex reassignment surgery is life-saving for kids and you've already lost by that point yeah, th- this is incredible, and, and we're coming up against another break, um, but we're speaking with Pedro Gonzalez and the Transgender Leviathan, and um, on the other side, we're going to talk more about how they are weaponizing uh, coming for your kids, using your tax- taxpayer dollars to pay for it, but then also the way forward. You're listening to Jenna Ellis in the morning. We'll be right back. Truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. 
Welcome back. And we're talking with Pedro Gonzalez, who is a senior fellow at the American Principles Project um, about the whole transgender agenda and mind-blowing stuff here that uh, this is actually being funded by your taxpayer dollars uh, going to these uh, these Frankenstein-like doctors who are receiving funding from the NIH, and then they are turning around and also uh, promoting this uh, type of queer theory into uh, the public education system, which is, of course, government-funded as well with your taxpayer dollars. And then teachers will tell your kids that uh, they should be a different gender or they are a different gender. And then when you as a parent decide, well, no, I'm going to teach them and train them up in the truth and uh, and affirm their actual biological gender, then you get the, the knock from the social worker that says, uh, sorry, your parental rights are being foreclosed. And then you end up going to court. And Pedro, before the break, you were um, about to talk about the court system, which, of course, as an attorney, I've, I've been involved in some cases that deal with um, dependency and neglect, uh, child custody cases and so forth. And you're absolutely right that judges will defer to the so-called experts who, of course, themselves have been trained in queer theory. They work for the government, often uh, guardian ad litems that are appointed uh, for children because they say, well, no one else in this courtroom is truly representing the interests of the child. So we needed a guardian ad litem to be appointed. So this is an outside attorney that the sole purpose in court is to represent the interests of the child. Well, that, according to the U.S. Constitution and according to the Bill of Rights that protect our God-given rights, that's the parents' job. Parents are the ones who decide the best interests for their children, but the trans agenda says no. So they are coming for our kids, and uh, you describe yeah. that in the Transgender Leviathan as well. So I think a, a good way to, to look at this is through snapshots. And so, <clears throat> so meet uh, Johanna Olson-Kennedy. Th- this is a researcher who was part of the team that was involved in the 2015 uh, NIH-funded study into transgender youth. Uh, youth. And so Olson Kennedy is, is a really good way to, to understand this problem. So she also authored an, an NIH-funded study that recommended minors as young as 13 for mastectomies. Now, at a conference in 2017, uh, Olson Kennedy was speaking and she was asked by a member of the audience, these are other physicians who are like-minded um, and they're in attendance, to basically discuss this topic specifically, it's, uh, transgender health. The organization is called US Path, which is a, a spinoff of WPATH, uh, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, the US Professional Association for Transgender Health. At the US Path conference in 2017, an attendee asks, Olson Kennedy, uh, what happens when we have a, a child who we believe you know, needs to be transitioned, but the parents are saying no? And so Do- Dr. Uh, Olson Kennedy said that it's not her first line of action, but she has no qualms about bringing the courts to bear on recalcitrance, that's the term she used, parents. And so what she means by that is that she doesn't have a problem um, getting basically breaking up families if she determines that there is a child who needs to to be subjected to the battery of, of medical intervention, so the puberty suppression, um, the administration of cross-sex hormones, and then finally surgeries. 
she has no problem getting the courts involved to basically force that to happen on a child if there are parents who she says have been given every chance because, you know, she's the one that determines whether or not you're a good parent. This is the language that she uses. That wow. there are, you know, if, if parents are not going along after they have been given every chance to do the right thing, then she says that there have been five or six situations at this time in 2017. I'm sure there's been more since then, but she said there's been five or six situations where she has brought the courts to bear on the family to, to basically ensure that this happens uh, to a kid. And again, that's really the problem in a snapshot here. Um, you, you can't opt out. The, 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 the research that normalizes this stuff is being funded with your money. And again, if you ever find yourself in a court against a judge, uh, there's a good chance that that judge is going to have experts whispering in his ear. And what are they going to cite? Well, this, this is funded by the federal government. So it has to be, it has to be sound uh, evidence, right? It has to be sound science if it was funded by the NIH. Uh, and I've spoken to families um, across the country that have had to deal with this. I, I spoke to a family in Texas. This is not my report. This is in my reporting for Chronicles magazine. I spoke to a family that had a close call in Texas, and I, I'll just go over that briefly. Basically, for the first, and I had to anonymize a lot of this information because the family was terrified. They agreed to speak to me, but they wanted as much of, you know, as much of, of the information as I could conceal hidden um, in order to tell the story because they were just terrified. But, but in, in Texas, um, there was a family who, for the first two years of high school, they had a daughter who, when they dropped her off at school, she would, she would basically attend school as a boy. And the school had a policy of hiding this from the family. And the family noticed that she had kind of retreated from family life. She had gone from being you know, very close um, to everybody, her siblings, you know, her mom and dad, to kind of just shying away from, from family life. And then one day the family kind of had a, like a, you know, a, a moment where things broke down. And they, they asked her, you know, please tell us what's going on. And then she said, well, at school is the only place I can be a boy. And be- right before this happened, the parents noted that, she, that their daughter had developed like a really close relationship with school counselors, kind of the kind of relationship that she had with her parents, but now she had it with people that worked at the school. And so they decided, okay, this is crazy we're going to pull the kids out of this particular school and then take them to another. Actually, they decided to homeschool. And they, they did everything, like, by the book. You know, they, they pulled their kids out. They even signed up for a homeschooling association. They took the path of least resistance. Instead of, like, you know, fighting the school, they just decided, all right, we're, we're out. A week later, they get a knock on the door from a social worker. Someone had filed a report against them that they had been abusing their daughter. That, that, that basically, as a result of, of her being transgender, the family had been uh, emotionally abusing her and basically locking her up in the house and not letting her see her friends. And the social wow. worker told the family that the claims are so egregious that they just that she, like off the record, said, "I don't believe this. Like, I don't believe any of this." Um, and because because after a safety check, it was very clear that you know none of the things were true. Like they basically said that the house had become a prison for this girl. And the social worker actually told the family. This is not the first time that we've seen something like this, or basically a retaliatory claim against the family when a kid uh, won't be allowed to transition. And then a second report was filed. And it was only because there was this, this and a few other social workers who were, you know, 
not totally brainwashed and on the family side because they told them not everybody who we work with is like this, by the way. And so that's why I had to conceal the identities of all these people. But the so basically, thanks to these good people that there are social workers, and because the claims were so insane, the family was able to avoid, you know, the whole process of, of, of going through, you know, fighting for custody of their kids or whatever. And it, but it really rattled the family having to deal of with this course. stuff and basically having to prove. And thankfully, the, the, the relationship that the parents had with their daughter was still so, so good that the daughter obviously was also really alarmed by this. And, you know, like she might disagree with her parents about things, but her parents were abusing her. And right. so the family made it out, but they were really terrified. Other and other families don't. I mean, this is just one example of how, you know, the state believes that they have custody and control over your children. And this is why homeschooling has come under attack and why the left is using some very um, egregious examples of people who are abusive and try to take out their kids for the purpose of uh, getting off the grid. And they'll use that as just one example of the whole, like that case in California um, with with the children who were actually being abused. And the state of California will try to use that as a way to say, well, homeschooling then should just be outlawed because we're going to presume that every parent who homeschools is doing this for a nefarious or abusive reason, which of course goes against the fundamental right of parents to choose the education for their children. But when you look at what the government is trying to impose upon children and say that the teachers, the social workers, the quote unquote experts know better, when parents fight against that, they find themselves fighting against this entire system. So in just the last few minutes that I have with you, uh, Pedro Gonzalez and everyone, please read this report, share it. It's free on AmericanPrinciplesProject.org. It's called the Transgender Leviathan. And what? let's talk about the way forward here, because this is so much information that parents need to be aware of. This is why you need to know what's going on in your children's schools, uh, in the homes of uh, where they visit, what their friends are telling them, uh, any sort of influences. Uh, we want to make sure to protect our children. So what is the way forward to think about this from a truthful worldview? So I think we have to get comfortable with not, I think, I know, we have to get comfortable with the idea of using power where we have it and when it is available to advance a, our, our view of things. There, there's, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a desire to be neutral. There's a, a desire to kind of go back to this, this mythical happy time where we all could just get along. Um, but, I mean, that time so existed, but it was stickers. a time before... <laughs> It, right. It was a time before we had fun. Like, there's, there's a difference between we disagree over, like, you know, what tax rates should be versus whether men can be women. There's a difference between we, we disagree on the number of people who should be allowed into the country legally and a disagreement over whether or not we should have borders. Those are not things that can just be papered over, right? And, and the, the side that realizes that and then fights for that is going to win. And so basically, I argue that we need to use political power where it is possible. So states like, because we don't have to wait for the president, right? We can, we can already start doing this stuff now in places like Texas and Florida, and, and that's kind of happening. But, but basically, we need to make transgenderism um, a, a kind of quackery. Like, it should be completely illegal for anyone to perform these kinds of surgeries or, or, any, or care and, 
air quotations here because it's not really care, uh, on children. You can't get a lobotomy anymore, even if you consent to one. You shouldn't be allowed to, to have your child sex reassigned, even if they've been convinced that they want a sex reassignment. Right. And, and you know, and what's interesting here, too, is that we have foreign policy in the United States still that condemns countries that perform FGM or, or female genital mutilation, which is exactly what's going on in transgender reassignment surgeries. And somehow that's, yes. quote unquote, gender affirming care. But it's the exact same thing that just for a different reason, other countries are performing that kind of mutilation on the genitalia yep. of children. But we're just yep. doing it under the auspices of something different. Yeah. So sex reassignments should virtually be completely outlawed. I mean, there are, there are obviously some people who are you know, unfortunately born with these rare conditions, but they have both sex organs. And in that case, a reassignment becomes kind of necessary for them to have something of a normal life. But in general, no, it's not, it's not something that you can just walk down the store and get a sex reassignment. Um, but especially with regard to children, Hospitals, clinics, and physicians administering these procedures have to face fines and have their medical licenses revoked. If right. you get caught administering any of this stuff, you lose your license to practice medicine, your clinic you know, loses its license, uh, and somebody goes to jail. That's just that's how, that's how aggressive we have to be about it. Yeah, um, and it shouldn't be elective level, either because you're talking about you know some – really outliers and anomalies, um, just like an abortion issue. I mean, there are unfortunately some women who lose uh, children in, in the course of their pregnancy, whether it's a miscarriage or during birth, but it's not an intentional medical intervention designed specifically to cause the death of a child. That's what an abortion is. And right. in the same way, there are some outliers that it's medically necessary. It's not elective. It's not saying you're perfectly healthy otherwise, and we are going to go and perform a gender reassignment surgery, or you're a perfectly healthy child. You're just unborn, and we're going to go and perform an abortion. I mean, these are things that are very clear medical distinctions that the left would try to confuse, and they would try to use that one statistical anomaly and the outlier to then prove the case for the whole and we need to stop that legislatively as yeah. well. <clears throat> and, and so you can do that now. There's no reason to wait for this. Like, uh, states can start doing this right now. And, you know, obviously shame on states uh, like Christy Nome states that, that is actually normalizing this stuff instead of fighting it where it could. But um, on the one thing that would require uh, control of the White House would be taking the NIH and just completely cutting off the spigot from it to funding any research, um, any like any grants and research that goes to institutions or individuals that, that facilitate anything related to this stuff, uh, that would require control of the White House, and we should do it. Um, like Absolutely. We need to completely cut off the money supply to this stuff, especially with regard to federal dollars. Um, Absolutely. And also create, create liability. So basically, any, if, if people promoting this stuff, whether it's drugs or therapy or whatever, uh, they need to be liable um, for, for promoting that. Yeah, and 100%. And these are practical solutions that we can implement and that we should be 
asking and demanding that our state legislatures, our governors, and then ultimately a Republican White House that will listen to implement these very critical things. Well, Pedro uh, Gonzalez, I'm so thankful for your research, uh, for your time today in giving us a bigger picture of what's really going on. Download the Transgender Leviathan at AmericanPrinciplesProject.org. I'm Jenna Ellis. You've been listening to Jenna Ellis in the morning where we tackle all of these critical issues from a biblical, truthful worldview perspective. We have to know what's going on in the world. Parents, take control back for the safety and education of your children.